Woodland Hills welcome to Christina Bussman. Good morning. I'm going to start off this morning with two disclaimers. Now, this is not the textbook way to begin a sermon, but I guarantee it's the most honest. First, if you were here last weekend on Saturday, this message will sound a little bit familiar. After last weekend, Greg asked me to preach this same message to the Sunday services, and it happened to be this week when he needed to be at this wedding. Um, wedding, what an excuse. His daughter's getting married. Um, so if it does sound familiar, you're lucky because you get to hear this service twice. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my second disclaimer. When Greg asked me to preach this sermon, I was less than excited. In fact, initially, I did not return his phone calls. That's a great thing about cell phones in Colorado. You can just force forward them. It's beautiful. I didn't return his phone calls because, frankly, I did not feel like I was in a place in my life to say yes to preach. Don't get me wrong. I do love our senior pastor most days. Um, and I truly do love preaching. And I felt a call on my life to proclaim the radical message of the gospel. But these last nine months of my life have been the hardest I've had to live thus far. And in this time, I've felt as if my spiritual voice has gone hoarse. And there have been moments where all I have been able to do is simply whisper this truth that we as Christians are called to boldly proclaim. And as I thought about preaching this sermon, I realized that I was, my hesitancy to talk with you all stemmed from a false notion that I was buying into as a Christian. This notion that we as Christians must always say that things are great. We must always have a smile on our face to show the world that all is right. This is far from the truth. Yes, there are things in this world that are profoundly good, and I thank God for them. But... There are things in this world that have gone profoundly wrong. And this is what I want to talk about this morning. I want to think about this question specifically. What do we do when we have to live with and after disappointment and defeat? In the next few minutes, I'm going to be as honest with you as I know how in order to start answering this question. But before we begin, I would like to dedicate our time to the Lord, so please bow your heads with me. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. You are our refuge. You are our rock. God, I pray that you would pour your spirit out on us right now. Lord, open our ears to hear your voice, and may we leave this place changed. Amen. Last spring, I finally thought I'd met the man of my dreams at seminary of all places. I'd kissed enough toads, so to speak, and had finally come across my prince. Now, I consider myself to be robustly cerebral, even relentlessly cerebral, and thus this caught me completely off guard. I was head over heels, totally in love. I even brought a little show and tell for you this morning. <laughs> kind of looks like a Starbucks commercial, doesn't it? Scott and I were planning to get married this summer. And we're in the process of negotiating all that had to be negotiated. Kids, vocational callings, finances, etc. But our plans would not come to pass. 
Last August, Scott underwent open heart surgery for a congenital heart defect. The surgeon who was to lead the operation was confident that things would go well. Scott was a healthy candidate for surgery. In fact, he was almost too healthy. He ran marathons. He was a rock climber. He surfed. He participated in almost any athletic event he could find. On the day of surgery, Scott was scheduled to be in the OR for six hours. He was to have his aorta repaired as well as a valve replaced. And during this time, we waited in the waiting room and received regular updates from the surgeon as to how uh, things were going. About the time that Scott was to be getting out of surgery, the surgeon came out and told us that there had been some complications. Six hours turned into eight hours, eight hours turned into 10 hours, 10 hours turned into 15, 15 into 18, and 18 into 21 hours of heart surgery. During those 21 hours, I prayed like I have never prayed before. I boldly petitioned the throne of God for Scott's very life. I pleaded for grace and time. I begged God to save this relationship that we had just begun, that we felt to be ordained by God himself. People across the country and across the world were praying for a miraculous recovery. But that would not happen. The surgeons tried everything they could, but due to fatal complications, Scott never woke up after heart surgery. In fact, not only was his heart severely damaged, he also had an aneurysm during the surgery. And there was so much pressure and bleeding in his brain that his brain pressed down and permanently damaged his brain stem. The next days and weeks and months brought a pain I did not think I would be able to bear. And there were days when I literally did not think I could take another step, much less feel like I wanted to. We say that this is normal. This is grieving. And this is true. Yet I needed a lifeboat in this sea of grief. I needed something, anything to hold on to. And over the last nine months, I have continually returned to Paul's first letter the church at Thessalonica, and there have been passages that I've read over and over again. In chapter 4 of that letter, verses 13 and 14, Paul says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. During this morning period, I needed to be able to stand strong on the cornerstone of my faith. But to be honest with you, I wasn't sure exactly how to live Paul's words. In moments of intense disappointment, the substance of our faith takes on a certain clarity. This is where we see what kind of foundation our house is built upon. Is there rock or is there sand under my feet? Do I really have hope in God, or do I have hope in my own intellect? Am I confident in my own expertise, my own abilities, my own bank accounts? Where does my hope lie? In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis says that after the death of his wife, his faith tumbled like a house of cards. Many days, I had no idea what state my faith was in, but... If any passage possessed the key to go on, I believed it had to be this one. And in fact, 
I think it is in this text that we find the response to our question. What do we do when we have to live with and after disappointment and defeat? To work toward this answer, I think it's helpful to get a bit of the background surrounding this letter to the Thessalonians. If you recall, Paul and Silas founded the church at Thessalonica, but there was a group of, of people in that community, a group of, of Jews who did not like that message. In fact, they revolted against that message and they drove Paul and Silas out of the city. Timothy later meets up with Paul in Athens, and Paul sends Timothy back to the Thessalonians because Paul is interested as to how they're doing. So Timothy goes and he hangs out with the Thessalonians, and then he comes back and he gives Paul a report. And it is Timothy's report that provoked Paul to write this first letter to the church at Thessalonica. So we see that Paul knew these believers. He'd spent time with them. He'd mentored them. And based on Timothy's update as to how they're doing, Paul encourages them in particular ways to keep growing in their faith. The believers in Thessalonica had a radical hope. They had hope in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they believed that Jesus would return during their lifetime. Imagine the joy that accompanies such hope. You would be expecting Christ any day. Christ was going to come back, perhaps next month. Everything the Thessalonians did had an immediate quality to it. Christ was coming back. But the church ran into some problems. Specifically, believers in this community began to die. Now, the Thessalonians believed that Jesus' death had conquered death for all of us. So they were left questioning this truth of what they believed. You can see why they would be confused. Jesus was supposed to have conquered death and returned to this earth before that generation passed away. But the reality is, people in this generation were dying. What was going on? Paul, in addressing this issue in chapter 4, verse 13, is concerned about the believer's knowledge. He says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed. Again, Paul knew this community and the nature of the hope they possessed. So in this letter, he is informing them of what that hope is supposed to look like in the midst of loss. Specifically, Paul challenges them not to grieve as those who do not have hope. He implores them to continue to cling to and live out this radical expectation of Christ's imminent return. The Thessalonians were to grieve with hope. The reality is, though, the first century church did not live to see the second coming of Christ. In fact, it has been 20 centuries, almost 2,000 years, and we are still waiting. So how do we view the New Testament church? Were they fools? Were they living a lie? They acted as if Christ was going to come back any day, and we today are still waiting. Furthermore, do you think that Paul would have given them different advice? If he would have known it would be hundreds of years, would he have changed his message to the Thessalonians? Frankly, I don't think he would have changed his words at all. Why? Because hope is not dependent on this world or bound by time. Hope rests in eternity. In Romans 8.24, Paul says this, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? The hope that Paul is talking about is a hope that has meaning because it is grounded in the eternal promises of the next world. Hope, then, is not a confidence that died with the first century. The crux of the definition of hope is not when Christ will come back, but that Christ will come back. And if hope... 
is not dependent on time but finds its object in eternity, then Paul's words are just as true today as they were 2,000 years ago. The church at Thessalonica was not living a lie but living the truth. And it is just as important that we too are informed about this truth that is shared in this space of grief and hope. And it is in the maintaining of these two realities of grief and hope that we find the substance of the answer to our question concerning what we are to do in the face of disappointment and defeat. The reality is all of us experience loss in our lives. This loss and the accompanying mourning can take myriad forms. There are different qualities and characteristics to each of our lives and each of our pain that make our circumstances unique. When I lost Scott, there was a sweetness and a purity to that separation. There was nothing I could have done before he died to show him that I loved him more. And that line between life and death was not an ambiguous one. He did not die slowly. Many people in the last months have told me, I can't imagine such an abrupt loss. And I suspect that this is probably true. But at the same time, I cannot imagine losing a child. I cannot imagine losing a loved one in a long battle with cancer. I cannot imagine losing a spouse after 40 or 50 years. I've come to believe that we cannot and should not compare our losses. They affect our innermost being in different ways, and thus to compare is only to do damage. And certainly, loss and mourning exist in other areas of our lives. Maybe you are going through a divorce, and you are mourning a relationship. Even if that divorce comes as a relief, you still grieve the dream that you thought you were going to live into. Maybe you have been abused or you've been raped and you're internally raging and screaming as to why this happened to you and you mourn the loss of your body as your own. Maybe you have been disappointed by a friend, by a spouse, by a parent who has wronged you. Maybe you're disappointed with yourself for what you have done or what you haven't done and you mourn what could have been or what should have been. Maybe you live with a disease or a chronic illness and every day you mourn the loss of health, something that so many of us take for granted. No one is immune from loss. We cannot protect our loved ones from it. We cannot protect our children from it. We cannot protect ourselves from it. If every morning you read the news online, you cannot escape the pain that this world bears each day. In fact, we almost have to safeguard ourselves from it. If we had a normal reaction of grief every time we read about or heard about a death, we would be overwhelmed. So then, it seems that Paul's words don't apply here, right? We know death, we know grief, we know pain, we are informed. But, but, I think in taking a closer look, it is not so much the acknowledgement of pain, but our attitude toward pain that can sometimes become uninformed or misinformed in our contemporary context. In discovering what this means, I think that first, we need to embrace grief on a personal level. Grief must be embraced on a personal level. Individually, if we pretend that we are not affected by loss, we are not properly grieving. In writing to the church at, Thessal at Thessalonica, Paul does not say, don't grieve, period. Rather, he says, don't grieve like those who do not have hope. 
What I found in the last nine months is that grieving is incredibly countercultural. I think that we live in a society where events happen rapidly and we expect people to adapt and recover at that same speed. James Gleck um, wrote a book that documented this matter, this issue. He wrote a book called Faster, The Acceleration of Just About Everything, in which he talks about our society's obsession with a fast-paced lifestyle. Grieving, on the other hand, requires slowness. It requires us to live differently. There is a deepness and a darkness to mourning that is exhausting. And sometimes we have to walk instead of run. And sometimes we have to crawl instead of walk. I remember having about three hours alone with Scott's body in the hospital. And I knew that I was standing on the ledge of a deep chasm. And I knew that once reality sunk in, my life would be fundamentally altered and there was nothing I could do to prevent that fall. Climbing out of this pit takes time. And I am still climbing. And in continuing to make this trek upward, I have had to fight both secular as well as evangelical culture to let God lead me at the right pace. <sighs> Grieving is not... Unchristian. Grieving is not unchristian. Why? Because grief and hope are not mutually exclusive. This acknowledgement of grief, I contend, must not only happen on an individual level, it must happen on a communal level as well. Grief must be embraced on a communal level. If we do not recognize the impact of loss and pain and grief, on the members of our believing community, we are not being the church for each other or the church for the world. I guarantee that there is unspeakable pain in this room right now. We carry it with us. And sometimes it is easier and it is safer to say that things are good when things are not. We have been socialized to smile and say that things are okay. When someone asks you, how are you doing? What is almost always the response? I'm fine. I'm fine. And sometimes we are fine, but sometimes we are not. And we must be a community that knows how to grieve. Paul writes in Romans 12, mourn with those who mourn. We live in a fallen world. In admitting the fallenness of this world, we are not admitting that Satan and evil are victorious. Rather, we are admitting what the spiritual battle looks like. We're calling it what it is. And in doing so, in calling it out, we are able to then give it back to God. This brings us to the third aspect of what it means to be informed of our grief. If grief and pain are a part of our lives, and indeed I think they are, we are called to give that grief and pain back to Jesus Christ. I think that one of the most natural struggles in the midst of grief is theological. Attempting to understand prayer unanswered prayer. Sovereignty, free will, love, good, evil, justice, etc. is so common in the midst of grief. In fact, I decided to pursue theology as a vocation because I loved these questions. Now I'm forced to deal with them on a whole different level, even when I don't want to. In the last months, I have processed this with Greg and with Paul Eddy for hours. And the reality is, I still have questions. Why exactly wasn't my prayer answered? What variables contributed to this horrible outcome of death? What spiritual battles were being fought? And why was this one lost? 
Yes, I still have questions. Scott is still dead. AIDS is still devastating families and communities across this world. Children are still being neglected, impoverished, and abused. Women are still being raped. Women are still being sold into prostitution. Young men are still being killed on the streets of our cities. Yes, I still have questions. But I also know that I have to live with the reality that I may not ever have answers. About five months ago, I was driving home from work, and these unanswered questions were again plaguing my thoughts. And I'd been having this intense mental struggle every day for about a month. And as I was sitting on an on-ramp um, to Highway 36, waiting for my turn for the metered light, uh, I read the bumper sticker on the car in front of me. I can't quote it to you in church because it's a profanity. Um, but it said, blank happens. Evil, if you will, happens. And as I sat in my car, read that bumper sticker, I broke down. Not because it was a profanity, but because it was true. Evil still happens. At that moment, I finally realized that my questioning would not change the reality of the past. In fact, my questioning was not letting me live in the present, and it was eating me alive. If we let them, these questions will prevent us from giving our grief and our loss back to God. In fact, I contend that the surrendering of these questions is more important than the questioning itself. Questioning allows us to be in control. It allows us to hold on to our own grief and pain. When we let go, we have to trust in a manner we've never trusted before. Jerry Sitzer is a professor of religion at Whitworth College. He wrote a book called A Grace Disguise, which I highly recommend. In this book, he reflects on loss in general, as well as specifically losing his mother, his wife, and his youngest daughter in the same car accident. And he writes this about the complete reorientation that is required when we trust in the midst of darkness. He says, I dreamed of a setting sun. I was frantically running west, trying desperately to catch it and remain in its fiery warmth and light. But I was losing the race. The sun was beating me to the horizon and was soon gone. I suddenly found myself in the twilight. Exhausted, I stopped running and glanced with foreboding over my shoulder to the east. I saw a vast darkness closing in on me. I was terrified by the darkness. I wanted to keep running after the sun, though I knew it was futile, for it had already proved itself faster than I was. So I lost all hope, collapsed on the ground, and fell into deep despair. I thought at that moment that I would live in darkness forever. I felt absolute terror in my soul. Later, when recounting this dream to my sister, she told me that the quickest way for anyone to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west, chasing after the sun, but rather to head east, plunging into the darkness until one comes to the sunrise. In the moments we don't see the light, we have to keep going toward the eastern horizon. This is one of the most difficult things to do. Easier said than done. In fact, I suspect it is easier for us to let this painful confusion of the tragedy stand between us and God than it is to give it to God. 
Yet, if we do so, if we let this questioning control our relationship with God, we are giving Satan another victory. If we are not giving our grief and our pain back to God, we are not giving ourselves fully to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying we should stop the questioning, but if this questioning prevents us from letting God love us and use us, then we are letting Satan reign triumphant in our lives. Why? Why is this so difficult for us? Because it forces us to face an unknown world of intense pain? Certainly. But this is also where we come into contact with our own finitude. This is where the tent that we have so carefully staked in the ground comes loose and flaps in the wind, exposing everything inside of us. This is where we have a choice. We can let the wind die down and put those stakes back in ourselves, or we can let God rebuild the tent. I've come to believe that this surrendering of our pain and brokenness for God's redevelopment looks a lot like the physical process of rebuilding after a devastation. Recently, I had a friend tell me about a very horrible storm that ripped through the center of her hometown. This tornado took out most of the establishments on Main Street and it killed several people in the community. Instead of reconstructing these destroyed houses and buildings and, and businesses in the same location, the council people as well as the mayor decided to redevelop this land into a city park, something that the city never had before. This park was constructed and a memorial was placed in the middle of the park dedicated to those who had lost their lives in the tornado. And the town has again flourished around this recreational center. Yet, Everyone in the town knows that no matter what good comes from this situation, from this park, it in no way makes the tragedy itself good. When the city park has children playing in it, we don't find meaning or justification as to why the tornado happened. The beauty of the park never takes away the incomprehension or the pain of the event itself. But it does affirm the city's choice to keep living. And we, too, have a choice. In the face of grief, we can choose whether we will give that pain over to God or whether we will keep it for ourselves. Since Scott's death, I have had a lot of well-intentioned people give me um, what I'm terming theological equations of cause and effect, specifically how certain good, certain good effects justify a horrific cause. Now, I have always been wary of such theological equations. I think I was especially troubled by these equations when my heart was so red and raw. And I could sense this familiar inclination to hold on to Scott's death and not let God use it. But you know what? That's exhausting. Arguing with the creator of this world is a full-time job, and after about two months, I was spent. So I did the only thing that I could do. I relinquished my grasp on that hurt, and I gave it back to God. And you know what? I have learned valuable lessons in the midst of this grieving and in this relinquishing. For example, my longing to be with Scott just for one more minute, just to have one more conversation, has taught me what my longing for Christ should look like. But such pedagogical good does not in any way mean that Scott's death was good. Yes, the evil of the event and the good that comes about are inextricably connected. 
But a good development does not explain or justify a bad thing. Rather, in allowing God to use this, to take these broken pieces from devastation and create something beautiful, we are proclaiming that Jesus Christ and not Satan will reign triumphant in our lives. What we are doing here is we are saying that Jesus Christ and not Satan will write the end of this painful chapter. In doing this, we are affirming hope in a risen Savior. Trusting in God and a future that we cannot see is exactly what it means to have hope. Exactly. In first 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul goes on to define hope as this. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. In this verse, Paul does not give the Thessalonians an explanation as to why Christ hasn't come back yet. He doesn't give them a theology that explains why there have been deaths in their community. Rather, Paul gives them a theology of the future, a theology of Christ's return. Hope, then, is to put our trust in these redemptive promises of God. The hope that we cling to is the future action of our Lord and Savior. It is the affirmation of the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we will fully experience in the future. This is a message of great expectation. The beautiful thing is that in time, when we let this eternal hope characterize our grief, we become free to live more fully in the present. Deep loss has a way of sometimes separating the unimportant from the important in our lives. Sometimes those trivial things don't matter anymore. And in these moments, when we truly allow ourselves to embrace the hope grounded in Jesus Christ, we begin to live not according to worldly standards, but according to standards of eternity. Hope then allows us to affirm the eternal significance of the present. We begin to live as our Savior did, with love that broke societal norms, with grace that extended beyond religious laws, and with compassion that countered common sense. We begin to live as if this world is not our home. We can find joy in this world, but it is not the source of our joy. We can find love in this world, but it is not the source of our love. We can find hope in this world, but it is not the source of our hope. Rather, we stand together with the Thessalonians and hope in a Savior who has promised to come back for us. I suspect that the pain of our deepest tragedies will remain with us during this lifetime. In other words, the spiritual scars that we receive from these spiritual battles will always be present in this life. But as we continue to mourn and as we continue to grieve and remember these losses, we look to Christ as our hope and as our salvation. So in thinking about our question, what do we do when we have to live with and after disappointment and defeat? I think the answer is we, de we grieve deeply with great expectation. I want to leave you this morning with a song. This song is U2's song entitled 40. Now, unfortunately, I don't have the connections to get Bono here to sing it for you. I wish I did. And if you have the connections, you can let me know. 
But I'm told that Bono wrote this song in about 10 minutes. All but one line, one question really comes from Psalm 40, hence the title 40. Um, Psalm 41 through 3 reads as this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Bono adds a question to these words that I think many of us wonder. Yes, we sing a new song. Christ is our hope and our salvation. But we live in a broken world, and I think some of us wonder how long. How long must we sing this song? How long must we wait in the pain of this world? How much longer must the earth groan in expectation for our Savior? For Scott's funeral, I asked some of our friends from seminary to do some special music, and they chose to sing this song, 40, in part because Scott was a crazy U2 fan, and in part because this song uniquely embodies that space of grief and hope. God has saved us. The resurrection is indeed true, and we live with the hope of the resurrection. But we still live in a broken world, and we still wait, and I think a really natural human prayer that for now has no answer is, how long, how long, God, must we wait for you to send your son back to earth? I encourage you as we listen to this song to really meditate on these words. Let them be your prayer. If you are in a place of grief right now, give that grief back to God. If you're in a place of frustration or a place of discouragement or a place of depression, give that back to God. If you are not in that place this morning, I encourage you to follow Paul's words to the Romans. Mourn with those who mourn. We live in a broken, war-torn, impoverished world. Pray for those who right now are experiencing that pain and that disappointment and that defeat. Whatever your situation is, let God meet you right here, right now. I encourage you to resist the temptation to think about what you're going to have for lunch, to think about what you're going to do on your day off tomorrow, to think about what you didn't get done at work this week. If you need to, close your eyes. Let God meet you here right now.
at this time, would the prayer team come forward? If you need prayer this morning, there are people up here who are waiting and would be glad to pray with you. To my right, to your left, um, there's a table. And if you are interested in learning more about what this hope in Christ is all about, someone here will be waiting to talk with you. Please bow your heads with me. Dear gracious God, you are good. You are holy. God, and we thank you for being steadfast in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would accept Paul's challenge to the church at Thessalonica and we would be people who know how to grieve with hope. God, I pray that that hope would shine to each other and would extend to the world. God, make us people of hope. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.